In American society, money is a taboo topic. We're taught at a young age it's improper to talk about it, but we're also bombarded with messages about the power and importance of money in our everyday lives. And by not talking about it, we miss out on the skills and lessons we need to effectively understand and financially plan. That changes today. Welcome to Money Tales. Hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder, Money Tales brings more than 35 years of combined professional experience in personal finance to demystify money and demonstrate what it's like to speak openly about personal financial matters. Join us each episode as they interview modern-day movers and shakers about how money decisions intertwine with their daily lives in order to give you better insight into productive financial conversations. Subscribe today and register for our blog, Fathom, at Asperient.com slash podcasts to increase your money mojo. And now, here's Cami and Sandy. Hi, this is Sandy. Rabbi Steve Leader is today's guest on Money Tales. In addition to being the senior rabbi of Wilshire Boulevard Temple in Los Angeles, Steve is also known as being a modern, wise man who, as you'll hear in this episode, is warm, kind, funny, deep, and non-judgmental. All of this from a person who at age 14 was arrested for stealing Bob Dylan albums at his local Target. Luckily for all of us who've been blessed to be impacted by Rabbi Steve's teachings, he found his way when his parents sent him to a Jewish summer camp in an effort to help him write his course. Hi, this is Cami. Where do we begin? Rabbi Steve has had a remarkable career impacting the lives of many, and he's not done. He's written four books, and the fifth called For You When I'm Gone is scheduled to come out next year. He's a regular contributor and guest on the Today Show, writes regularly for Time, foxnews.com, Maria Shriver's Sunday paper, and he has contributed to so much more. Newsweek magazine twice named Rabbi Steve one of the 10 most influential rabbis in America, but most important to Steve is being Betsy's husband and Aaron and Hannah's dad. Please stick around after the interview for our takeaways from the discussion. Now, on to our conversation with Rabbi Steve Leader. Rabbi Steve Leader, welcome to Money Tales. Thank you. I'm very honored to be with both of you today. We're honored to have you. We'd like to ask you to introduce yourself by providing a brief overview of your life. If you can focus on two or three pivotal moments that really make you who you are today, that's always helpful. First is being the fourth of five children to parents who got married at 17 and 18 and had five children before they were 30. And growing up in a working class family, my dad and my uncle owned a junkyard called Leader Brothers Metal. They grew up on what today we call welfare, but back then was called assistance. They were poor, children of immigrant parents. There were seven of us in a three-bedroom, one-bathroom home. Nobody went hungry. But I think in terms of the, the content of your podcast, that kind of working class. I grew up working in the junkyard. I was scrubbing toilets and floors at seven years old there every Saturday. And I worked there every summer. Uh, so I think that that work ethic was fundamental to everything I have ever been able to achieve. Uh, of course, there's a serious downside to that kind of work based on anxiety related to poverty. But Like most things, there's a dissonance in it that was both a blessing and a curse. So I think that's the first thing. 
I think the second most pivotal thing that happened to me is I already told you I was the fourth of five and my parents kind of done parenting by the time my little brother and I rolled around and kind of took their eye off the ball. And I had a, a little bit of a misspent youth. And at 14, I got arrested for shoplifting Bob Dylan albums at Target. <laughs> With the guys in my band, I was playing drums in a rock band and I was smoking a lot of weed in junior high school and just basically what a kid would do whose parents weren't really paying much attention. And that kind of woke my parents up. Hey, we better keep an eye on Steve. And they went to see Rabbi Shapiro at Temple Israel for advice. And he said, you need to change his peer group. And you should send them to this Jewish camp in Eponomowoc, Wisconsin. I grew up in Minneapolis. By the way, if you ever saw the Coen Brothers movie, A Serious Man, that was my childhood. They grew up a few blocks away from me. That was literally an hallucination of my childhood. So if you want to know what it was like, there it is. They sent me to this Jewish summer camp when I was 15. And the moment I stepped off the bus, I fell in love with everything about it. I loved the hippie counselors who were into the same music I was into. I loved growing our own food in the garden. I loved the creativity of, hey, you write the prayer service. You guys do it yourselves. It was a place where I was allowed to expand creatively, having come from a family where every creative pursuit was summarily dismissed as nonsense. You want to be a writer? No. You want to be an actor? No. You want to be a musician? No. It's all nonsense. You can either go to law school and take over Leader Brothers, or you cannot go to law school and take over Leader Brothers. Those are my two career paths. <laughs> Father's mind. It was a place where I was free to express myself creatively. And here I was looking at rabbis in shorts and t-shirts who could throw a baseball. I had no idea. I had no idea that rabbis could be even remotely normal because the rabbis I grew up with were these elderly, scary guys in black robes and kind of gnarly teeth. And they were just scary. And these guys were not. And I didn't grow up in a bookish family. And so I aspired to that. I thought at one point, if I could ever have a job that required a suit and tie, I would be the luckiest person in the world because my dad went to work in a uniform and work boots. That moment in that place, I really believe deep inside, I was lucky enough to find my thing at 15 and to look at these rabbis who seem to be both normal and connected to something transcendent and deep. And I believe I said deep inside myself, when I grow up, I'm going to be like that. And honestly, I never looked back. And I went on to study writing at Northwestern University because it was something I was good at and that I knew would be an important skill in the rap minute. Uh, I worked in politics for a little while because I flirted with that idea and found that it was a pretty vacuous endeavor. And right from college, I went to rabbinical school and rabbinical school is five years after your undergraduate degree. And then I came immediately to work for Wilshire Boulevard Temple in Los Angeles, literally 34 years ago, almost to the day. And I'm at the same place I started and I was ordained with a class of 70 and I am the only person still where he or she began his or her career. It's a really good marriage. It's a very special place. I've managed to have many jobs without changing my job within it. And if Jews had a mega synagogue, the way evangelicals have mega churches, I, I think we would justify, justify would be it because it's a big operation and it, it really satisfies 
my desire as a business person and as a person who likes to grow things and as a person who likes to care for other people. It, it's just the perfect, not the easiest place for me, but the perfect place for me because it's a place where I'm able to be very, very aspirational in a way most rabbis just, they just can't be because the resources aren't there. I've written four books. A fifth one will be coming out in June of 22, which is done and it is germane to our conversation today because it's about how to create a legacy letter or what Jews call an ethical will for your loved ones. The book is called For You When I Am Gone. It's about bequeathing values rather than assets to the people we love or after we're gone. And I think, I hope I hit on some of the bigger things. I also got engaged to my wife on our second date uh, and we've been married 35 years. So I also kind of have a blink mentality, Malcolm Gladwell's blink sort of way of being in the world. There you have it. I'm a dad, I got two kids, 32 year old son, 29 year old daughter, They've been raised in L.A., but I'm very proud to say they love ice hockey, fishing, and Minnesota Vikings. <laughs> so I haven't led them completely astray. I feel like a very, very fortunate person. And that is really an, a fantastic introduction. Tell me, I've always, this might sound silly, but I am terribly intrigued with junkyards. I can't oh, even yeah. imagine. Yeah. Would you share a little more about growing up with a family that owned a junkyard and Maybe even tie in, how did money even play into that? Money is a big part of it, okay? Because how did this start? My father and uncle were two of five children. And as I said, they, they grew up on public assistance. And they were poor. I'm talking about like burning wax paper in the Minnesota winter poor, okay, to stay warm. They were poor. And there was an empty lot that next to their home in North Minneapolis that was part of their property. And my grandfather would let people dump their garbage and refuse on the empty lot for a fee. And then my uncle and my dad would pick the tin cans out of the garbage, take it to the junkyard and make a little money. And my father suffered from a fear of poverty, which he absolutely traumatized all of his children with, and I have it myself. Now, we are not talking about the children of Holocaust survivors here, but my dad, for example, buried gold coins in the backyard and would take me out there as a little boy and say, you see this tree under there, some gold coins, God forbid we should ever have to buy bread. The Cossacks were coming at home. And the junkyard was a very lowbrow kind of place. I mean, we're talking about a really dirty, hot, dirty, dangerous business. My Uncle Mort lost a finger in what's called the shear, which is something that cuts pipe lengths of pipe, almost like a scissors. He lost his finger. My cousin Mickey had battery acid in his eyes from breaking batteries to get to the lead in the batteries. My dad suffered from frostbitten toes and fingers, and they all came home with bloody fingernails from the work. And as I told you, I grew up scrubbing toilets and, and floors, especially in the employee locker room. Lots of the employees were ex-cons. Lots of them were, were alcoholics and drug addicts. And the clientele were, were also very blue collar. And some of the stuff was clearly, clearly stolen, hot, fell off a truck, copper pipes from job sites and copper tubing and aluminum siding and things like that. 
aluminum siding sent me to college because there was a it was the rage in the 70s and when you put aluminum siding around a house you cut the ends off to make it all fit and the ends get recycled and i ran the baler which was the way you cubed up stuff my dad could run a crane and back up a semi he knew nothing about baseball he knew nothing about sports he knew nothing about school he knew nothing about college he was very different than the other dads but he could he could drop a car with a crane and back up a semi you know so it, it was a different kind of upbringing than what you would expect for someone who ended up doing what i'm doing so look dirty blue collar cash business my sisters worked in the office and one of them got held up at gunpoint and by the way as a point of reference cultural reference for people my dad's yard we called it the yard was about three blocks from where george floyd was murdered oh wow i I spent much of my youth in that neighborhood so i felt that very deeply for all kinds of reasons but it's like every other business cami buy low sell high it's no different than any other business rabbi steve you're learning the basics of economics and investing in an environment where there was a fear of running out of money. Correct. How did that form you as you were growing up and you were starting to think about college ultimately? And it seems like you're someone who's been very creative your whole life. What was going on for you personally? This is the strange thing. It made me, I know this term is thrown around quite a bit, but I really mean it. It made me a workaholic who was convinced no matter how successful I was, I might be fired the next day if I didn't work even harder. That was the effect it had on me. It did not affect me in a materialistic way or I should choose a profession where I'm gonna make a lot of money. That was never discussed in our family, never discussed. The work ethic was everything, not so much the financial result of that work ethic. And I don't know if that's a plus or a minus, it's probably a little bit of both, In terms of my upbringing, I definitely chose a profession where I would make far less than I would make in the private sector with the commensurate degree of success. The reason I didn't go into politics was because I realized that it was really not about ideas. It was about money. It really is ultimately about money. And it didn't interest me for that reason. So you would think that I would have grown up with this father said, look, you never want to be poor, et cetera, et cetera, and you should choose a certain kind of profession. That didn't happen until I told my father I was going to go to rabbinical school. And then he said to me, rabbis are beggars. That was his response. He was a hard guy. If you read my most recent book, you'll understand. I mean, he was, a, he was very tough. And his answer was not, oh, I'm so proud or that's so wonderful. It was rabbis are beggars. The funny thing is, is after all these years of fundraising, (laughs) he was right. (laughs) He just didn't quite understand the level at which I would be able to do the uh, aspirational conversation. (laughs) What did it feel like when he said that to you initially as a young person? I was dispirited, but not surprised because, look, I love my, you know, I miss him. I loved him. I still love him. But everything was dismissed as foolish. Everything other than working till you dropped. It was all foolish, except for the synagogue, which was the one place that my parents would drive us to. So you don't have to be Sigmund Freud to figure out how I ended up where I ended up. Look, 
it affects me to this day. I literally had lunch before this podcast with someone talking about when I retire and my fear that I'm going to run out of money. And it's not a rational fear. Money's not a rational thing. It's a symbol of something. Money is not of concrete material value. It's representational. And so it becomes a vehicle for our own mythologies. I've spent a good deal of time thinking and writing about the psychology of money. But to answer your question, it was all about the work ethic, not about the net worth. And my father, by the way, ridiculed any display of wealth. For example, he would not wash his car. When they built the house we lived in, he built it to look very small in the front and it was larger in the back. Because first of all, he didn't trust the assessor and he didn't want to pay a lot of taxes. But he also, where I grew up, the, the ethic was to stay one step behind the Joneses, not ahead of the Joneses. The appropriate thing to do was to be one step behind, not ahead. Why was that? Well, I think that all arrogance and haughtiness was to be ridiculed. Uh, and that was perceived as an outward sign of haughtiness or arrogance. I also think it was my father's own insecurity about never really fitting in in a more polished, educated world. He never, ever could, could do that. And maybe that was embarrassing to him. Maybe it wasn't. Uh, it was sometimes embarrassing to me until I had the maturity to appreciate his authenticity. He came to one Little League game in my whole life. I don't think he ever came to a hockey game or a basketball game. Uh, he came to one play in high school saw me wearing tights playing puck in Midsummer Night's Dream and almost had a heart attack. I think it was insecurity. I think it was feeling awkward. And I think he, in the defense, it got subordinated by saying people who have displays of wealth of any kind are full of shit. Mm. Rabbi Steve, you said something really stuck out with me and I'd like to share it back. Money isn't rational. It's a symbol. So what does money symbolize to you? Not much. Tell us more. Well, I don't think net worth and self-worth have very much to do with each other. But I'm around people who are seduced into that equation all the time. When I give talks about this, the first thing I do after the introduction and all of that, I say, you know, I don't want to assume that all of you here know each other very well. So what I'd like to do just to begin is I'd like you to turn to your neighbor, to your left, your right, in front of you, behind you, and just share your net worth with each other for a minute. And first there's total silence and then a roar of laughter. And I look at my watch, go, no, no, go ahead. We've got a couple minutes. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. And they keep laughing the way that both of you are laughing right now. And then I say, now let's stop for a moment. Why does that simple request make all of us so uncomfortable? I'll tell you why. Because even the finest human being in this room right now, the best of us, every one of us, because of the culture in which we live, cannot help but in some way believe that our net worth and our self-worth are intimately related. We can't help it because of the culture we live in because of the culture that rains down upon us this message that our outer life, our outer material life is an inner life. 
does have real meaning. And, and then I say to people, it's like trying to eat a picture of food. To think that what we have is who we are is like eating a picture of food. <laughs> and look, I live in, in Los Angeles, which is the belly of the beast of, of these TV shows. I mean, you think about all of these different TV shows. When I wrote the book about money, which was many years ago now, I watched my kids, they were little, I watched them watch television. And every show has a different name, but they all have the same subtext. Biggest makeover, queer eye for the straight guy, pimp my ride, what you name it. Biggest loser, which was the weight loss thing. The plastic surgery shows, they all have different titles. They all have the same subtext, which is, if you change your outer life, it will change your inner life. And that's a lie. That's just a lie. Look at the covers of women's magazines when you check out of the grocery store. Look at the covers of men's magazines when you, everyone's a billionaire or has perfect abs or both. And the women's magazines are anorexic fembots with fake parts. And that's the ideal. The first time this hit me was when my daughter Hannah was a teenager and I, come in the door after a long day and, and she just like assaulted me at the front door. She said, Daddy, I want these new jeans and mommy said I can't have them because they're too expensive, but I really need them because they're the only ones that fit me and my thighs are so fat and I have to get these jeans. And she was just, it was a barrage. I didn't even have both feet anymore. I said, Hold on. What are these jeans called? And she said, true religion jeans. Just think about that for a minute. True religion genes. So we have this issue. Now, the pandemic, I think, has served as a very, look, I don't for a moment mean to dismiss the pain and misery of this pandemic. I've done the funerals four or five a week for months. Mm -hmm. So I'm not dismissing the downside of this. But I think it has also served as an important counterweight to that mentality. And it has really helped a lot of us realize that it's who, not what we have, that matters. Now, will we hold on to that with all of this pent-up demand to buy, to go? I don't know. I really hope so. And I want to be clear with you both. I am not for a moment disparaging wealth or money. A friend of mine joked about that book. I should have called it Rabbi Bites Hand That Feeds Him. But, <laughs> but it's not disparaging of money. Money is neutral. It could be a very powerful tool for the good, and it can completely lead you astray. If you ask most people the most terrible thing they've done in their life and the greatest thing they've done in their life, very often money's involved. Hmm. And if you ask people... One of the other things I do in these, when I talk about money with people is I ask, well, let's do it with you. Should we do it with you? You ready? Ready. Okay. Let's start with you, Sandy. Okay. Bring it on, Rabbi. Can you share with me your very earliest childhood memory of money? Your first time that you can remember dealing with experiencing money. What was it? My parents arguing about it. Okay. Cammie? When my dad used to drop the dime in the payphone booth, 
so that I would find it when I was walking along. I would be elated because I found the dime sitting in the change machine. It was exciting. It was exciting. Right? And you thought money just appeared. (laughs) I thought money just appeared. Right? So here we have two very common examples. The tooth fairy is sometimes one, oh, money for body parts. It's amazing. Right? (laughs) Sandy, in your home, money was a source of conflict, negative. Cammy, you had a completely unrealistic understanding of where money comes from. You know how many kids before credit cards became dominant, how many kids believe that money comes from ATM machines? Probably a lot. Yeah, most yeah. probably. A whole generation. Yeah. You say to them, well, we can't afford it. They say, well, just put, put the numbers in and get more, right? Almost everyone's childhood, first early childhood association with money are negative. Because parents don't think about their children's early experiences with money. That's right. And no matter what your socioeconomic level might be, that's really important. We have to talk about this. And it's a taboo subject. That's why people won't share their net worth. My parents knew about each other's hemorrhoids, but my mother had no idea how much money my father had made. And he liked it that way. Thank you very much. He didn't want her to know. So. We have a lot of confusion at best about the meaning of money. Money is so powerful. Money can heal. Money can uplift. Money can educate. Money can protect us. Those alarm pads at our front doors, those locks on our car doors. Money is powerful. It depends on how you use it. It's neutral. Many things are like that. The sun, the sun grows our crops and it can give you skin cancer. Nuclear science creates nuclear medicine and nuclear warheads. So this now becomes our job as human beings about how do we use this tool, this tool, this symbol called money. The Hebrew word, by the way, for coin is zuz, zuzim. Right, Sandy, you know this. My father bought for two zuzim, right? From the Passover. Zuz comes from the Hebrew verb to circulate. It was never meant to be hoarded. It was a vehicle to uplift the poor. It wasn't how you were wealthy. You were wealthy based on crops, children, goats, sheep. Money was a vehicle to support the poor. And listen, I like money as much as the next guy. I really do. But can we have our head on straight about it? That's the question. So Rabbi Steve, I'm glad you're asking this question. And I'm reflecting on some of your books, More Money Than God, The Beauty of What Remains, which is your most recently published book that really deals a lot with death. You're someone who's thought about money and who's thought about life and the meaning of life. What advice do you have for us and our listeners? for choosing to use money differently? In a word, alignment. Alignment. A lot of people get into trouble. In fact, I would say almost all trouble that people get into comes from a lack of alignment. In other words, their professed values, the things they say they believe in, are not in alignment with how they actually live. This is why politicians and celebrities get into trouble. 
This is how we all get into trouble. When we say we believe in a certain set of behaviors and ideals and morals, but we behave. And there's some dissonance in all of us. I mean, every human being has a secret. Okay, I mean, like, that's just what it means to be human. But the more we can be in alignment, the more what we say we believe in and how we behave can be aligned, I think the more peaceful our souls will be. And so I would say the advice is really ask yourself, what do I really believe? What do I believe in? And then look at your checkbook and see if you are aligned with what you say. I mean, no one has a checkbook anymore, but you get the metaphor, right? That's an old expression. It's a compliment to say someone puts her money where her mouth is. That's a compliment because most people don't. They profess certain values, but they don't really live them and support. So I would say the, the single best thing I can recommend is to work hard at being aligned and aligning your spoken values with how you live and how you spend your money is part of how you live, a big part of how you live. Rabbi Stephen, I appreciate you bringing up the values and I'm wondering if you would share with us how you and your wife brought to life or even came to finding common ground of your values. How did you approach that? I fell in love with her the moment she walked in the room. I really did. That's great. And we got engaged on our second date. This was not a conversation we had other than I do remember on that second date, my wife's name is Betsy. She said to me, I feel bad. She was working at the time for 17 Magazine in New York, making $17,000 a year in Manhattan and literally sleeping in a closet with a bar of clothes above her head. And she said, I, I feel bad that you pay for everything. And I said, hey, I love you. You love me. There's no me and you. This is our money. And I didn't have that a lot either, but that was my attitude. That was the only conversation we had initially about money. So I think we were aligned just already in terms of our values. She grew up in a small town in Indiana. We're both Midwestern kids. And I don't think that was ever uh, misaligned. And we've always been an either or family is the way I described it to our kids. We can't do everything. We have to make choices. It's either this or that. And our kids grew up around the uber wealthy. I'll never forget this. My son went to Boulder. Both my kids went to Boulder for college, University of Colorado. And when he came home for Thanksgiving his freshman year, I said, well, what have you learned? And he said that we're rich because it was the first time he'd been around kids other than the children of the uber wealthy because they went to shishi private schools in LA and everybody, I mean, they, everybody had more money than we did because I was the rabbi. I wasn't the celebrity or the agent or the producer. Or, you know. And he realized, he said, I were rich. I had no idea. There are a lot of kids there whose parents can't pay for college who have to have two jobs. And my kids were raised in kind of an insane environment, but we always worked very hard to help them understand this either or concept. And they've heard me talk about money ad nauseum, even to the point of like, when Hannah, I'll never forget this, she was about 14. And she came home and said, I need this. And I said, Hannah, do you need it? Or do you want it? And she, she rolled her eyes and she said, oh, 
you and your stupid book. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's like, so, you know, they've grown up with this conversation and they've grown up seeing very wealthy people lose their way. And, And let me tell you, being a good person has nothing to do with wealth. I've met really wonderful, very wealthy people, and I've met horrible wealthy people. I've met really wonderful middle-class people and really horrible middle-class people. I've met really wonderful people who are who live at or below the poverty line, and I've met horrible people who live at or below the poverty line. It has nothing to do with it. We've tried hard to raise our kids to understand that. So I love what you're talking about with alignment between values and beliefs and how you're using money being really clear about wants versus needs. And I'm wondering if you'd maybe give us a preview into the book that you just finished writing that's going to come out next year. Thank you for asking. Yeah, I just, I think ethical wills are very interesting. It's not a concept we've talked about on Money Tales yet. So I I would love it if you give an overview and, and maybe give us some thoughts there. The term ethical will is something, it's a document that Jews have been creating since the Middle Ages. The earliest one we know of is 11th century. And Jews in Italy and France and Germany, it began as letters from fathers to sons and then eventually mothers to their children. Essentially what it is, is a bequeathing of values and ideals in written form to our loved ones for them to have after we die. Almost all of us have what I would call a material will, an estate plan. We've all figured out who gets our stuff. But the truth is, and I know this from losing my dad and from officiating at a thousand funerals, that's not rabbinic hyperbole, that our loved ones need our guidance and our wisdom and our values much more than they need our stuff or our money. So the next book has 12 chapters. Each one is a question that I write an essay about and invite the reader to ask an answer for him or herself, to give them the raw material they need to create their own ethical will for their loved ones when they're gone. The book is called For You When I Am Gone. And Betsy and I have written ours for our children. I published it in The Beauty of What Remains. I've written two. I wrote one when I was 40. I wrote one when I was 58 because I changed and my children had grown up. I spend a lot of time in cemeteries. And despite the fact that we all live different lives and we're all unique individuals, I'm always struck by the almost complete uniformity of inscriptions on headstones and cemeteries. They all say exactly the same thing. Loving wife, mother, grandmother, friend. Loving husband, father, grandfather, friend. That's it. When you have to distill the essence of what matters in, a, in life, to 15 characters per line and only four lines, because that's what they give you, you're engaged in a very productive form of essentialism. You strip away a lot of nonsense. You'll notice no one's net worth is on there, no one's zip code, 
no one's college they graduated from, not your grandchildren's GPA, not your GPA, none of it, none of it. It's nonsense at the end of the day. Or I wouldn't say nonsense, that's an overstatement. It's not as important as the handful of human beings in our lives who matter. And none of us have more than a handful, none of us. An ethical will is an opportunity to speak to those people, that handful that really matter and in whose hands and hearts your legacy rests. The Talmud says the son acquits the soul of the father. Acquits the soul of the father. And I think what it means is it's our job to carry the souls of our loved ones forward and have their ideals be our challenge. Their best ideals. But how do we know what they are if we don't articulate them for our children? So the book is a hand-holding guide. Here's the question to ask yourself. Here's how a lot of other people have answered that question. How would you answer that question? Now sit down and take all of these answers and pour it out onto the page for the people you love. That's the book. What a great tool. I'm curious, Rabbi Steve, what changed for you? Maybe just an example. Between the two. From when you're 40. Yeah, what changed? When you asked me to introduce myself, I left off one very formative and pivotal experience, which was when I was 55, I was in a very frightening car accident and uh, suffered injury to my spine that caused excruciating pain and ultimately resulted in uh, surgery in a brief but very real addiction to opioids. My first experience with depression, which I never understood before. And someone asked me when I was working on the, my third book, which is called More Beautiful Than Before, How Suffering Transforms Us. I was at a think tank with a bunch of other rabbis and we talk about what we're doing. And I said, I'm working on this book. The idea started because of how this accident and chronic pain changed my life. And he said, well, how did it change you? And I said, well, I'm nicer. I don't think I was a bad guy before, but I'm less judgmental. I'm just a nicer person. If I can get a little Jewy on you for a second. There's this verse in the Bible that says God puts God's words upon our hearts. And the sages in the Talmud ask, why upon our hearts and not in our hearts? Certainly, if God could put words upon our hearts, God could put words in our hearts. And the answer they give is God puts words upon our hearts and it isn't until our heart is broken that the words can enter. In other words, in a certain way, we're more whole when we're broken. And the difference between my ethical will at 40 and my ethical will at 58 is that I wasn't broken at 40. I hadn't taken a bullet yet. I hadn't seen my father in his casket. And my dad and I at each age looked almost exactly alike. I'm 61. If you saw a picture of my dad at 61, you couldn't tell us apart. And so despite having been the rabbi literally at a thousand funerals and having walked a thousand families up to the casket to look at their loved one, it never affected me. To be honest, I could have eaten a sandwich there. It was like I was detached. I was doing my job and help supporting them, but it wasn't, I didn't feel it. 
that moment, when I looked into that casket and saw my father there, the first thing I thought to myself was, that's exactly how I'm going to look when I die. I am going to die. And my son is going to be leaning over my casket. And my daughter is going to be leaning over my casket. It was in that moment, despite all of my experience being up close to death, that I realized I'm going to die. Kafka said the meaning of life is that it ends. It's really true. And that changed my ethical will to my children. It's a less directive, less judgmental, less flip. It's a more serious document. It's a longer document. It's a more thoughtful and mature document. And that has more to do with how I change than the fact that they've now grown up to be adults themselves. Thank you for sharing. Yeah, and it's more transparent, too. I'm curious, Rabbi Steve, do you recommend that people who write these ethical wills share them with their family members? Absolutely. Yeah, you should not wait till you're dead to share this with your children. It's a conversation starter. It's an important conversation starter. Our kids have read both. And it's a part of our estate plan. It's bound with our estate plan. So like, you can't get to the money until you read this thing first. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so... Here's the surprising thing for most people when I lead workshops to help people write ethical wills. After it's set up properly, you would be amazed at what pours out of people in 15 or 20 minutes. If you just ask the right question, it literally pours out onto the page. That's so beautiful. And I love that you're instructing people to share their values and their stories with the next generation. It's important. It's like talking to the kids about money. And they're so related, right? Because it goes back to your alignment idea. And if people can clearly articulate their values and what's most important to them, a lot of money, a lot of money challenges would be avoided. Yes, they'd be in alignment and people would have less insecurity. You know, my wife is just, she's an amazing person. And I had a an irrational moment of more than a moment of anxiety about money not long ago. And she said, it's only money. And she meant it. She meant it. She said, we'll we'll sell the house. It's only, it's only money. And to be aligned in that way is really powerful and beautiful, special. She had more sense than I did in that moment because, you know, anxiety creates a lot of catastrophic thinking. And I grew up with that. There's money buried under the tree in case you have to make a run for it. I grew up with that catastrophe. It's hard to shed. Why do you think you still hold on to this fear of poverty? I was raised with it. And I think that it's in the basement, pounding on the ceiling with a broomstick all the time. Freud was right about that. You can repress it, but it's there and it's making noise. A global pandemic doesn't help when. The whole world seems like it's going to be different. And my son lost his job and lots of people lost their jobs. And and I was the guy writing the articles and preaching the sermons about this is an opportunity to strip away a lot of nonsense. And there's a chapter in The Beauty of What Remains called Nobody Wants Your Crap. I meant the double entendre, by the way. It's both. It's both. When we die, all this stuff we spent our lives accumulating 
the collection, you know, the paperweights, the fountain pens, the clocks, whatever the hell it is, people, the baseball cards, whatever, the, the furniture, the family heirlooms, but nobody wants it. Your kids don't want it. Your grandchildren don't want it. Goodwill won't even take half of it. It's garbage. It's crap. And yet we're on this treadmill. And again, I like money. I'm not trying to pretend otherwise, but I'm so much more. One of the things that my father's death, it released me a little bit. I think it was the realization of my own death. It released me a little bit from the grip of that catastrophic fear of poverty. I spend money differently now than I did before, and I'm spending it for experiences. And I love Joshua Tree in the Mojave Desert in California, and we're building a little cabin now in Joshua Tree. I wouldn't have done that before my father died. But there's something about finitude that is enormously important. I'm going to badly paraphrase the poet Wallace Stevens, who said, the beauty of a flower is that it fades. Why aren't we moved by plastic flowers? Because they have no death. Therefore, they have no life. They don't mean anything. Only something that is finite means something. And so my father's death taught even the guy who wrote the book about money an awful lot about the value of money and, and, and what it's really for and when and how. And that's part of the beauty that remains from loss. And this whole concept of how beauty can be created by what we take away and by what we choose not to do, even more than by what we add to our lives and choose to do. You can think of it like a sculpture. A sculpture began as a solid block of marble. The beauty was in it all the time, but it could only be revealed by artfully removing chip by chip by chip by chip. And now that I'm older and my ethical will represents this, I realize that the beauty and quality of my life is dependent much more on what I take away, what I say no to, what I won't do, than what I can add and acquire and amass. That's another reason I called the book The Beauty of What Remains. It's really the beauty of our lives is created much more by our no's than our yeses, because behind every no, is a yes. No, I'm not going to die with all that money. That's a yes to, I'm in a little cabin in Joshua Tree where I can walk with my grandchildren through the boulders. So this whole idea, I think, is very important and instructive. Rabbi Steve, that was such a gift of bringing that to life. It's really a powerful visual, and it really resonated. <laughs> so thank you. It's also the difference between happiness and joy. They're not the same thing. In Hebrew, by the way, they, they're two totally different words, just like they are in English. And the Hebrew word for happiness is related to the idea of luck. It's like, a, like winning the lottery without buying a ticket kind of thing. Like the things that make us happy are ephemeral and I wouldn't say accidental, but coincidental sometimes. Or like, Ice cream makes me happy. I love ice cream. It makes me happy. But the Hebrew word for joy, simcha, comes from the word for a seedling, a little plant that has to be tended and nurtured and grown over time. 
Joy is the fruit of a very slow growing tree. Happiness, you bump into, you stumble on it. Oh, I got lucky. It made me happier. You know, having dinner with my friends makes me happy. Scotch makes me happy. A ball game makes me happy. But does it really, is it really joy? What is joy? To me, the simple way to explain it is, it's the difference between being a guest at someone else's child's wedding and being at your own child's wedding. You can be happy at another person's wedding, but what I see and feel from parents at their own child's wedding is a completely different order of magnitude. It's different. It's transcendent. It's beautiful. Because why? Because they have sacrificed and struggled over years and decades to raise that child. Most of us think of sacrifice as a negative. He made the ultimate sacrifice. Oh, she sacrificed so much. So again, to get a little rabbinic on you, the Hebrew word for sacrifice comes from the word to draw closer, to be near. People made sacrifices to God in order to draw nearer to God, to be closer to God. The way we pray now got replaced with prayer. But if you ask, well, let's try another exercise, okay? I'm going to ask each of you this question. Two questions. First, we'll start with you this time, Anthony. What are the two things that matter most to you in your life? Oh, don't do this to me. <laughs> I've got two daughters and a husband and oh, family. You can see your family, your family is okay. One. They can list as one. Okay, my family, right. my family and, for sure. And what's second? Oh my God, my friends. Like it's okay. Your relationships. My relationships. Right. Okay. A lot of people say their career. A lot of people say their friends. Almost everyone says family first. Sandy, the two things that matter the most to you in your life. My family. And finding ways to make the world better. Okay, beautiful. Now, what are the two things you have sacrificed the most for in your life? I don't think of it as sacrificing, but you're raising a good point. I, it'd probably be family. You have obligations. It's hard work, isn't it? It's hard work. Yeah, you don't, but it is. It's like I said, there's obligations with family and you just, you just do. And yeah. same for those friendships that are so special. Right. Sandy, what have you sacrificed the most for in your life? Well, it's just ironic. I think I've given up time with my family in order to be able to contribute to my family. But the sacrifice was made for your family. Yes, but it seems twisted when you ask me that way. <laughs> well, there's, well, it's not unusual. And that's worth thinking about, I would say to you, as your, as your rabbi, that's worth thinking about. But what have we learned? We've learned that the things that matter the most to us are the things we sacrifice the most for. The things we're closest to, the things that matter are the things we sacrifice the most. Right? So sacrifice is not a net loss. It's a net gain. That's sacrifice. There's, this, there's a famous story about Isaac Stern, who was a very famous violinist. And a woman came up to him after a concert one night and said, oh, Mr. Stern, I would give anything to be able to play the violin like you. And he said, would you give 10 hours a day? 
So perfect, the, right? The things that mean the most to us are the things we give the most to and sacrifice the most for. And so it's a different way of understanding sacrifice. It's a positive, it's a gain. Now, this translates into the idea of how do we use our money? You really do gain when you give. You really do. Thank you. That was intense. I wish I had said health because that's my second thing. That's and I'm you so, probably work pretty hard at that. And I do. I work. Okay. I think I get lucky. You know, we get a lot of well, luck. Well, some right? of it's your genes, but some of it's how okay. hard you work at it, how disciplined you are, how many sacrifices you make, what you say no to, what you don't eat, what you don't smoke, what you don't drink. These are all all interrelated ideas that don't seem to be about money, but they are because it's about how we employ this neutral thing that is a symbol of our ideals. Rabbi Steve, this has been an amazing and powerful conversation. It's coming to an end. So we're going to ask you a question that we ask all of our guests, which is, what's your next money conversation going to be and who's it going to be with? I think my next money conversation is going to be with my wife, Betsy, who is testing out new cars. I mean, she's very level-headed about it, but we're probably going to have a conversation about, well, what do you think? You think it's okay to spend this much or not? And how important is it? And, you know, LA is sort of a car culture place that's there easy to get seduced. And that'll probably be the next money conversation, but it's never a difficult conversation for us. I mean, money has just never been a difficult thing for us to talk about, ever. We're lucky. I mean, there are obviously other things that have been difficult to talk about because we're parents of two kids and we've been married 35 years. And so, of course, but money has never been uh, a hard one. The only really difficult money conversations I've really had in my life have been with my father, to whom I lied about the cost of everything I ever bought. And in my once every seven year negotiations with my congregation about my contract, because it's, it's a hard thing to talk about when you do what I do. It's hard to try to value it in some way monetarily. It feels untoward, and yet, obviously, it's important. But other than that, I really, I have this fear of poverty, but I don't have difficulty talking about money and values. I'm interested in it. Cheers to that. Thank you, Rabbi Steve Leader, for the gifts of your stories and your experiences and your questions and this future book, I personally cannot wait to go through the exercises. I hope you'll have me back and we can talk about it. I promise not to grill you too hard. <laughs> Thank you, Rabbi Steve. We wish you a lot of joy in the years Thank ahead. Thank you. Thank you so much. And to both of you, I, I really appreciated the opportunity today. Sandy, what's a takeaway from our amazing conversation with Rabbi Steve on Money Tales that you'd like to share with our listeners? I really enjoyed the conversation, but I will start us off by saying that I appreciated what he had to say about alignment, about people's actions matching their goals and their values, because this is so true about money. We've talked about it on Money Tales before, and it's worth repeating. People are most satisfied when they are using money, earning money, and managing money in accordance with their goals and values. Rabbi Steve also said, net worth does not equal self-worth. And that is absolutely true as well. 
there's a lot of societal pressures around that, as Rabbi Steve mentioned, but really be in touch with who you are, what you believe in, what's most important to you, and align all of your money matters around it. Life will be good, I promise. Mm, Sandy, I love that. And I know you believe that, knowing you so well. I really appreciated what he said about the subtext of shows. I think he was talking about television shows that if you change your outer life, your inner life will follow. And I never really thought of this, but the minute he, he brought that present in my mind, I realized to your point, like it really reinforces that message. Like that's not the problem. <laughs> it's not your outer self. That's going to fix your inner self. Get to your core. I agree with you. And I think knowing that focusing on that should help all of us because we're all unique. What's going on on the inside is so different. And having an awareness about that and being comfortable with it can allow people to feel free to break away from what society is, is telling us about the outside, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. particularly the moneyed outside. That's right. Something I'm going to spend time with is this idea behind every no is a yes. And I, I really resonated in this world where it just feels like we're trying to cram more and more and more into our lives, do more, produce more, say yes more. He gave that beautiful story about a sculpture that it begins as a solid block of marble. The beauty was in it all the time, but you couldn't see it necessarily. You had to artfully remove it chip by chip by chip. And that the beauty of your life is something similar, that you pull away some of the stuff that's just distracting you from the core. It's, it, there's a lot of similarities, what you brought up, I think, but I do appreciate the metaphors that he helped me think differently about how I approach my own life. And, you know, I used, sometimes you think no is bad and no isn't bad. No is, is saying yes to something else. And that was amazing. I can't agree with you more, Kimmy. As someone who always feels compelled to say yes and is up for all kinds of exciting opportunities, even when they're outside of the core of what's really most important to me, Uh, That was a really good reminder. And I loved that reframing that a no means a yes to something else. Sandy, I think it'd be really helpful for you to talk a little bit about ethical wills because it was a really interesting idea, something I've never been exposed to. I cannot wait to read Rabbi Steve's How to Create an Ethical Will. Would you share with us a little bit more and some perspective on that? Yeah, I I too am looking forward to his book. It sounds like it's going to be a manual about how to go through this process. I'll say that I've never actually gone through the process myself. I'm compelled based on this conversation to do it. I've heard other people talk about ethical wills at many different times in my life. I've just gotten too busy saying yes to other things to to sit down and write one, but I'm ready to do it. My husband and I have actually been talking about it as a result of this conversation you and I had with Rabbi Steve. And the whole idea, as Rabbi Steve mentioned, is to really write down what's most important to you, capture your values, all the things that we've just been talking about, put them onto paper, add some context, tell those that are most important to you and who are likely 
to be around after your life is over, what's most important for them to hear from you. And I think there's so much beauty in that. And I was thinking when Rabbi Steve was talking about this, that it would be so great to reframe the exercise. And instead of making it a will, making it more of a birthday gift for Mm -hmm. those in your life and really capturing those feelings that you have about your children or other people in your family or in, in your personal sphere who are really important to you. I can't think of anything more beautiful than being really clear. That would be a wonderful gift. And it is, it's nice to think about you experiencing it during your lifetime. My dad, as you know, passed earlier this year. And as Rabbi Steve was talking, I, I just thought, oh, we missed our opportunity. And then I paused and I thought, nope, we have mom. She's still vibrant. I'm truly going to sit down with her and go through this exercise with her because it's really important. I know a lot, but I want it documented. And I think that'll be just a really special exercise and something through that to even honor my dad. I bet that will be the case, Cammie. And I know from personal experience, I'm sure you do too, when you have words written down by someone that's important to you or recorded, Mm. um, whether it's video or audio that you can go back to, it's so important later on in life. It just captures a moment in such a beautiful way that our memories are too imperfect to hold on to. So This is true. I can't wait to hear about what your mom has to say, and I hope they'll share some of it with me. I definitely will, Sandy. This is something that we do talk to clients about, not so much the ethical will, but writing down thoughts and meanings and intention for the next generation. Something really important. It resonates with a lot of clients, but I think just like we were mentioning, you get busy in life and there's all kinds of reasons for not sitting down and doing it. So I encourage our listeners, if, if you're so inspired, to pull out a, a piece of paper or sit down at your favorite electronic device and start typing away and recording your thoughts and feelings because it'll make a difference at some point to the people in your life. I'm curious, Sandy, when you have clients do this, do they bring it back to future wealth management meetings with you? And does it impact their overall financial strategy? I haven't had a situation with any of the clients I serve sharing with me, but I know in situations where clients have gone through the exercise, they have reported back that it was a very freeing, feel-good experience and that it added more meaning to the financial aspects of what their estate plan was otherwise covering. Mm, That's fantastic. Just like we're doing on Money Tales, the more you can communicate your values, your thoughts, what's most important to you, how you're feeling about it, it, it just helps those around you understand and find meaning in their own lives. Helps you focus on what's most important to you, saying no to say yes. Yes. Rabbi Steve, thank you again for your time and sharing your wisdom with all of us. You know, to our listeners, we welcome a conversation with you. Please email us at podcasts at Asperian.com. And thanks for joining us. You've been listening to Money Tales, hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder. To subscribe to the show on your favorite platform or to increase your money mojo via their blog, Fathom, 
head on over to Asperient.com slash podcasts. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Money Tales. Money Tales.